Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series from Indicast where we chat with uh, personalities who have made more than a mark in their field. Today I have with me James Astill, the Economist South Asia Bureau Chief who specializes in subjects like militant extremism, wars and terrorism. His work has taken him to places like Cuba, Sudan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Congo, you name it, and uh, is currently in India. He's recently won himself the Gerald R. Ford Prize for Distinguished Reporting on National Defense. James, it's a pleasure to have you. Well, pleasure to, to talk to you, Abhishek. Uh, James, uh, your job title on The Economist a few months ago read uh, Defense and Terrorism Correspondent. Uh, you know, my first reaction to that was uh, that's a rather unconventional or uh, cool title to have. Uh, how consuming was your stint as a writer in, uh, in Islamabad when you covered Pakistan? Well, that, um, very consuming because I lived in Islamabad as the Pakistan and Afghanistan correspondent for The Guardian during that time. I visited Pakistan very regularly and wrote about the country. And uh, in your research, you might have met terrorists and extremists as well. Uh, if, uh, have you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I've met some fairly rough characters in Iraq and Afghanistan, including those that were fighting uh-huh. uh, American and other Western troops there. So if, if, if that's who you mean. Yeah, so right. I mean, I'm intrigued by what is their emotional background or how are they in person? What drives them to put their lives on the line for religious reasons? I mean, if you've met them, if you can share some of your personal experiences with a few of those extremists. Well, I suppose they're fighting for an idea, although, as, as you suggest, it is an emotional impulse too, but it's, it's, it's not really very different in kind from the way that people fight for their beliefs, religious or national or whatever, all over the world and, and throughout the history of our species. That includes people who are fighting here in India, many of them for different causes. Right. Very recently, seven doctors were arrested for being involved in an Al-Qaeda bomb plot. Normally educated people, you don't expect them to be involved in such uh, suicide bombings or mass murders. So then can we uh, safely assume that an educated person, it's not a parameter for you for not being a terrorist? In no way. It's it's one of the distinctive things of this increase in in jihadist ideology the last few years that educated people, as you say, have been and want to fight for them as think. That took people by surprise a couple of years ago, right. but we now rather expect it. Al-Qaeda's most famous attacks, including the 9-11 attacks, have, have involved lots of people with university degrees and yeah. uh, in upbringings in different countries, educated people, as you say. So these are rational men driven by somebody who conditions their mind so much that they lose their sanity, or how does that happen? Well, they're insane if religious belief is insane. They're, uh-huh. they're fighting for an idea which they find to be all-consuming, all-pervasive. On one level, this is a religious struggle. They prefer their religion to any other. Uh-huh. Um, but it's also about feelings of grievance, whether based in a sense of national grievance, anti-imperialistic grievance, or a sense of national ambition. It's a struggle that's being fought for a variety of, of different reasons, which uh-huh. overlap probably in the same way that wars have always been fought. Yeah, but uh, James, uh, jihad, uh, in the name of holy war, there are a few extremists who are uh, soiling the entire religion. I mean, jihad basically means uh, struggle to be a better man. Well, I've met Islamists in many different countries, and some of them, as you say, do define mm-hmm. jihad in, as it can be defined, I understand, from in Muslim teaching as, as being indeed a personal 
struggle for self-improvement, but right. it also very clearly uh-huh. can be defined as, in much cruder terms as being a struggle against infidel, against non-Muslims, against those that don't espouse their ideas within Islam. And those that do define jihad in, those, in this crude, battling manner are obviously very well organized at the moment. That's been the phenomenon that we've seen. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, the efforts to counter this ideology have so far been extremely unsuccessful. And unfortunately, the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have both gone more or less very badly, uh-huh. um, which seems only to have poured fuel onto the fire. Right, right. You've been in Pakistan for uh, how long during those days? Well, I've been visiting the country for, I suppose, about six years, oh. writing about it uh, and lived there for about a year within that time. What is a common man's perspective out there, like a man in Karachi Bazaar? Is he in favor of the government, or how much of it affects his life? Well, we've seen a big change in the last three, four months where the government has lost a lot of popularity. But prior to that, and there are opinion polls to, to back this up, I think uh-huh. that the man in the street was hurting because of high inflation, but basically felt that the government was doing at least as good a job as previous governments have in Pakistan, whether military or, or, or democratic. Uh-huh. The man in the street is worried about the economy. He's worried about whether he can feed his children and send them to school. And despite high inflation, the economy has done well in Pakistan in the last few years, and mm-hmm. the government's been seen to, to deliver on a few services as well. So in terms of looking after poor people, the Musharraf's governments in Pakistan haven't rated too badly. Uh, oh, okay. It's, it's on, a, on a higher ether political level that I think more problems arise. Uh, uh, but, but in your article in the survey about Pakistan, uh, you are of the opinion that General Musharraf over time has lost his sheen, that he has not been able to pull off many things, and the reason for which the army rule was imposed in the first place seems misplaced. Uh, I mean, I said in that survey, which was, I, I should say, written more than a year ago, yeah, right, right, right. That, that Musharraf has not delivered on some of the bold promises that he made at the beginning of his rule back in 1999. And I think that what's happened in the, the past 12 months have, uh-huh. have, have probably exacerbated that, that failure. Uh, okay. Um, Musharraf rules as a democratically elected president. Uh-huh. How, however, <laughs> he has such a firm grip yes. the institutions of, of Pakistan that it's not a free and breathing democracy at all. But that compromise, that mm-hmm. compromised democracy, compromised dictatorship, if you like, creates problems for him. So you cannot create free and independent institutions, as Musharraf promised to do, if you compromise them whenever you need something done, if you need the Supreme Court, for example, uh-huh. to, to give you a favorable decision. And in the past few months, the very serious judicial crisis in, right, in, the in, justice in Pakistan was has been an example of this. Indeed, Musharraf tried to sack the, the chief justice. And very re- remarkably in Pakistan's history, the chief justice said no. He said, <laughs> unconstitutionally, this is not within your powers. Right. And so began a series of, of protests by the judiciary, which became increasingly popular in, in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. I suppose one might say that if it hadn't been a judicial crisis, it would have been something else. Ah, okay. So then is uh, religious extremism a consequence of the army rule or the, the so-called quasi-democracy that is existing there? Or will it happen anyway in Pakistan? The, the, the answer is yes. country which was formed one level as a community of Muslims was always likely Mm-hmm. to have, have a minority of people who espouse a minority view which, within Islam, which is jihadism. However, at the same time, um, as you well know, Abhishek, the army, has used the Islamists for its own purposes, both to fight wars, but also politically at home to counter the, the secular opposition. Uh-huh. So they have been well organized as a result of army rule. That's true. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, James, you've seen the country very closely, and you might have uh, witnessed the great kite-flying festival of Basant as well. 
Have I you? have indeed. Yes, oh, you, have. Isn't, isn't it a little ironical that Pakistan celebrates a festival predominantly celebrated with equal pomp and vigor by Hindus? Well, it's ironic if you think that um, the land of the pure Pakistan is, uh-huh. is, a, is a purely Islamic country, but of course it isn't. Muslims and Hindus have, have rubbed along together for, for centuries, and, and Basant is a classic example of that. Right. Here, here in northern India, where a very large Muslim population, as you know, there are more Muslims in India than there are in Pakistan, yeah. there are boundless examples of similar cultural crossover and innovation between Hindus and, and Muslims. Uh-huh. You know, that brings me to another question. Can Indian and a Pakistani get along perfectly well when they are, say, in Dubai or, say, Malaysia or in the U.S.? But even a six-year-old in India has an opinion about Pakistan, which might not be very uh, positive. So do you think media has a part to play in glorifying the rivalry? I'm sorry, can you say that again? Yeah. I mean, an Indian and a Pakistani... Get on very well. But get on very well. They have, yeah. Yes, when they are outside the country. Mm. So it's always India versus Pakistan. Yeah. Do you think media has a part to play in glorifying the rivalry by putting out magazines, front page news, the peace process not working well? Well, I'm, I'm sure that it does, but I, I think India needs to look at itself pretty closely on this. The rivalry between India and Pakistan has been important to both of them as a nation-building strategy. Of course, partition defined that in its appalling bloodiness. Right. Um, but things change. Pakistan, I think, has grown up a little bit faster than, than India. Pakistanis, as a rule, are no longer knee-jerk negative about India. They've been saturated by Hindi films, Hindi media. Over, over the last um, five, ten years, there's been an explosion in media, especially electronic media. And there just isn't that antipathy in Pakistan anymore amongst the majority of the population. In India, I think, which is more inward-looking necessarily partly because of its biggest size, uh-huh. um, there hasn't been that transition. Indians are supremely ignorant about Pakistan, and they haven't moved on from that rivalry to anything like the degree that Pakistanis have. And frankly, it's about time that they did. Oh. Um, I think that there is an ignoble lack of understanding and enthusiasm for the peace process that's uh-huh. um, ongoing between the two countries here in India. Peace would be a wonderful, wonderful benefit to both countries. I think that Pakistan needs it. India doesn't need it to anything like the same degree because its economy is so bigger and self-contained to a certain degree. But peace is is possible. This process is still, though of course flawed, um, hugely encouraging and much better than what's gone before. Yeah, but then again, James, there are three countries. Like there is, one is India, one is Pakistan, and there is a third country called the extremists or the terrorists. Whenever the two countries move towards peace, the train gets bombed or the minister's car gets uh, ransacked. So then I think we are fighting together, both the countries, towards getting somewhere. But then there is this third jihadi group, which will never allow us to get there. That's true. And when jihadist groups were very, very clearly run by Pakistan's government, uh-huh. India was fully justified in saying, you guys are not serious about peace. We can't talk to you about normalizing relations when, when you attack us. Thus. Right, but, absolutely. But I think there has been a change, as those in the high corridors of, of power in India will acknowledge, sometimes only in private. Uh-huh. Pakistan has been much, much more hurt by jihadism and by the militants that it has self-nurtured in the past few years than India has been. Uh-huh. I think the, there is less and less evidence that Pakistani government is involved in Islamist terrorism in, in India, despite the, the knee-jerk finger-pointing 
towards Pakistan that always takes place in India when, when there's attack. And certainly, though Kashmir remains uh, an extremely vexed place, partly the fault lies w- with, with India there. Um, though, of course, Pakistan also needs to take an element of, of historical blame. Uh-huh. But the Pakistani government has certainly done at least a good deal to decrease the amount of incursion into, into Kashmir, Indian-controlled Kashmir, as it would say, uh, so by, uh, by, by jihadists. Uh-huh, okay. So then you mean to say that India is very skeptical about moving towards the peace process and not so much with Pakistan. Pakistan has put his hand up and said, okay, I'll do it. Is, is that what you're hinting? It's, I think that overstates it, Abhishek. But Pakistan also has doubts, also has great skepticism about the possibility of, of, of peace with India, and especially amongst Islamists. Uh-huh. But this process has, I would suggest, been driven more by Pakistan than it has been by India. By I India, think, uh-huh. by, I think that... General Musharraf's greatest achievement has been this peace process. I think he does have a vision of what normal relations, peace between the two countries would look like. I think it's a practical vision. And I think that um, despite the wishes of Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, mm-hmm. who, who shares that vision, India has been far more doubting, far more suspicious uh-huh. than, than Pakistan's government. Uh, you, you might be right there. I think history also might not be in India's favor. That's why the skepticism. But then I think with Musharraf taking a very strong stance against uh, terrorism, like very recently in Lal Masjid, that he ordered the commandos to storm the masjid. So I think that might be a statement that General Musharraf is putting out out there to the world, that yes, we know that something is amiss and that we are willing to take a stance. Well, we'll see. As, as I said, Pakistan has been far more hurt by Islamist terrorism itself than mm-hmm. it has hurt others in recent years. India is suspicious and it, and it rightly wonders how long President Musharraf's regime might last for and doesn't want to do a deal with, with an administration that's about to disappear. And that's very understandable. At the same time, India doesn't feel any urgency towards making peace with Pakistan because it doesn't feel that it needs to. It has the the portion of, of Kashmir that it wants. Uh-huh. Uh, it can bear the cost of the war. It doesn't feel that it needs peace. But I would say that that was the wrong attitude, not least for Kashmiris, who really are the true victims of this struggle uh-huh. uh, on both sides of the line of control. Okay, so that is your perception from a third person. That is you, because you are not an Indian or a Pakistani, yet you've worked so closely with the two countries. So in reality, the fact is that Indians are somewhere, are not yet up there as much as Pakistan. So India should grow up is what you might hint there, I believe. Well, I don't want to underestimate the difficulties of diplomacy between the two countries. Uh But I think that the average Pakistani simply understands an awful lot more about India Uh than Indians know about Pakistan. There's great ignorance of the place. Why do you think is the case? I mean, if a Pakistani knows so much more about India, and the freedom of speech, I think, as much in both countries. Well, the Hindi films have a huge amount to do with this. Um, uh-huh. India exports its culture in a way that Pakistan does not. But also, I think, the fact that Indians live amongst Muslims here in, in India and have, by and large, a rather negative view of that community, which is um, great injustice, means that they have a prejudicial view of Pakistan. Pakistanis don't live amongst Hindus by and large, uh-huh. um, and are therefore less knee-jerk prejudice against them. Ah, okay. Well, uh, James, now that you're in India, how do you find the two countries, Pakistan and India? How different are they culturally from each other? Though Indians might be loath to concede this, there's very, very, very much more in common between the two countries. There's very much more that binds them together than there is that, that separates them. Uh-huh. Culturally, an Indian Punjabi 
has almost nothing to distinguish him from a, a Pakistani <laughs> Punjabi, whereas, okay. where, whereas for him a Tamil might be a very foreign person. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's great similarity. Um, as in both countries, there's also difference within those countries. A, a Pashtun is more different from a Pakistani Punjabi than that Punjabi is from an Indian Punjabi or perhaps even a Bihari. Uh-huh. Okay. The differences are religious and they're political in general. Right. Pakistanis have a different view of their state um, than than Indians because India's democracy is so much better developed. Uh-huh. So if you take that away, the Indian and the Pakistani are almost indistinguishable between the two of them. Well, there's a great, great deal in common, that's for sure. Uh-huh. Okay. Unsurprisingly, they were the same people. Right, right. Years. Another thing is that how does the political structure affect the country's economy? In China, you have the Chinese Communist Party. In in India, you have the world's largest democracy. And we know that General Parvez Musharraf is the man behind everything in Pakistan. Well, certainly if you compare India and China, you find that a country that is not democratic, uh-huh. in a country that's not democratic, the government can make grand decisions much more easily, much more efficiently. Though it's, it would be churlish to fault India when it's growing at 8% as it is currently. Right. Um, there's no doubt that it could grow faster, that it could manage its economy better uh-huh. um, if the government was freer to make technocratic decisions as, as China's is. However, there's a payoff there. It's generally felt, and I think this is true, that India is politically far more stable as a result of, of its democracy. It's also more likely to check itself from committing terrible environmental crimes by growing too fast and thoughtlessly. I think that despite um, the great environmental crimes that are taking place in India, it, it's not to be compared with, with China as yet. Uh-huh. So, so there's a quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that India is uh, growing at 8%, but then it, the economist also feels that uh, India is overheating and that it uh, needs to engineer a soft landing. These are a few of the words from a few of your articles. Mm. But then on the other hand, there are around 230 million Indians who don't get a dollar a day to survive. Uh, do you think there are two Indias now? I mean, one, one is going at 9% and the other barely has anything to eat. Well, I- that's actually true, and Amartya Sen has, has talked about the risk of India becoming a, two countries, as, as, as you say, one California with sub-Saharan Africa, that is. Right, right, right. Um, the reason that, uh, that we talked about the economy needing to slow down in a carefully managed way, as you say, with a soft landing, uh-huh. is not because we want growth to slow, but we want real sustainable growth, not credit-driven, demand-driven growth, as we think mm-hmm. uh, there is currently too much of. Uh-huh. All right. And what about the population uh, perspective? Uh, in the U.S., uh, U.S. is going through a population trouble, if not a crisis, and the fertility rate has dipped below the replacement rate. In India, you have the exact opposite situation. So then, uh, do you do you count these people or do you count on them? A very cliched question, but then I would want to know. I think nobody argues. India has a population crisis. There are too many people in India because there are too many poor people and the population is going too fast but right. the only way to slow, slow the population is by delivering economic growth. People only start to have significantly fewer children when they get richer. There are enough examples around the world to show that that's, that's the case. Okay, but there was time, you know James, in 92-93 there were captions and holdings everywhere uh, stating hum do hamare do. Uh, have you heard of this uh, slogan? Any, any I back? haven't, no. It's a message out to everyone. Hum do means the two of us, and hamare do is the two that we reproduce. Right. So, do is two in Hindi. Yes. But now we can't afford to have those slogans because two children per family will not help the population explosion crisis that we have right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it? Hum do. Hamare do. Hamare do is, yes. is probably still a reasonable slogan. So. 
But in China, they have this policy, I think, the second child does not get any of the government doles or grants or payments for further education. Only the first child gets that. Mm. Well, that that would be politically impossible in, <laughs> in India because India is a democracy run by its people ah, okay. and, and its people would find that to be intrusive, draconian, unfair. Uh-huh. And uh, finally, how do you like the country? You're in Delhi right now. I'm in Delhi. So how hot is it out there? Um, it's been raining for the last couple of days. So oh, that's good it's, to know. It's, it's, it's cooled down somewhat, which is which is a great blessing because um, <laughs> it's been a, a murderous monsoon with with not much rain. And, and but I'm very fond of Delhi and I'm very very fond of, of India both. Oh, that's good to know because it's raining as I'm talking to you. It's pouring cats and dogs in Mumbai, and you would have read that Bombay was flooded again yesterday. So. Um, I, I rather envy you being in in Bombay because <laughs> I love I love the place, but um, I, I could do without a. Without Bombay in the, in the floods, <laughs> that right. country could do with a serious shake-up and clean-up. That, that city could do with a serious shake-up and clean-up, as we all know. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Dr. Manmohan Singh has said that he would need around 1,600 crore rupees to get the drainage system working in Mumbai. So um, I don't envy whoever had to do the maths on that. But I... <laughs> Okay. Well, uh, James, it was uh, great talking to you, and uh, thanks a lot for sharing your information. No, it's a pleasure, Abhishek. Cool. That's about it from Point Blank. That was James. If you have any comments about the insights that he had, please log on to www.theindicars.com and post it there. All right. Have a good day, James. Bye-bye. Thank you.